0: This is the Mahabharata Podcast, episode 43, Savitri and Rama. Last episode was yet one more of the Pandavas' tribulations in the forest. This one was especially bad because Draupadi was the primary victim. Jayadrata, the king of Sindh, a distant cousin of the Pandavas, spotted Draupadi alone in the woods and abducted her while the Pandavas were out hunting. Their house priest, Damya objected to Jayadrata's actions but only on the grounds that he would failed to first vanquish the Pandavas before taking their wife. If he would only done that, then he would have been perfectly justified in absconding with Draupadi. By the time the brothers returned, the raiders had already set off. The brothers tracked down their quarry, slaughtered the king's bodyguard, and finally Bima and Arjun caught up with the fleeing king. Bima subjected him to a thorough thrashing and gave him a ridiculous haircut, but his life was spared. Jayadrata was Gandhari's relation, and Gandhari was wife to Dhritarashtra, so they had to spare his life. The king of Sindh was not nearly so forgiving. In return for the humiliation he suffered at their hands, he performed austerities for Shiva in a quest for revenge. Despite the severity of his yoga, Shiva was not very generous. Jayadrata had demanded the ability to kill all five Pandavas, but he ended up settling for being able to slow them up for a while. But Shiva couldn't make any promises about Arjuna. Arjun had powerful friends, and Shiva was not interested in provoking them. Following this little interlude, the scene changes back to the Pandavas camp, where things had settled back to their old routine. Yudhishthira was still broken up about the whole abduction incident. He complained to Markandeya. Why did Draupadi have to suffer these insults? I have put up with humiliation and violence, and every time I did the right thing. Even when everyone else thought I was crazy, I stuck to my dharma and did what was right. Despite all the virtue I have earned, why must Draupadi, who is innocent of everything, be subject to such bad treatment? Has anyone had it as bad as I do now? Markandeya's reply is quite amazing. He literally broke into the story of Rama Dasharati, telling the complete tale of the Ramayana. This is justified by the relation Draupadi's abduction had to Sita's experience in the Ramayana, but is a pretty extravagant response, I think. I apologize if any listeners are disappointed, but I'm going to skip this Markandeya story. It literally covers the entire story of the Ramayana. Probably weeks after getting Markandeya started on the Ramayana, Yudhishthira complained again. He said, I don't grieve so much about myself or my brothers, but rather Drupad's daughter. When we were lost in slavery, it was she who bought our freedom, and now she was kidnapped by Jayadratha. Has there ever been a woman who is as devoted to her husband and as great as Drupad's daughter? Markandeya said, Here king of the greatness of noble born women, All this was achieved by the princess Savitri. The tale began with a king of the Madras named Ashvapati. He was a gentle and kind king with a happy kingdom, but he had no children. He became worried as he and his wife grew older, so he lived by a strict vow of starvation and celibacy. I'm not sure how he expected this to aid his fertility, but it certainly didn't help for the first 18 years of this lifestyle. Finally, on the 18th year, The goddess Savitri came down as a messenger of grandfather. Ashvapati asked her for a child and she promised him a daughter. Some more time passed, and perhaps realizing that if he wanted this child he'd better do something about it, Ashvapati finally had sex with his wife, and this time the arrow hit its target and she got pregnant. As promised, the queen had a girl, and they named her Savitri after the heavenly messenger. She grew up to be a brilliantly beautiful woman. She got to be too beautiful. So beautiful that men were intimidated by her. The old king was not getting any younger, yet he couldn't find a man to inherit his estate. The guys were all just spooked by her good looks. Finally, running out of options, the king resorted to a sort of improvised swayamvara. He threw her out of the palace and ordered her to go find a husband, and don't come back until you have one. Obediently, the girl set out into the wide world in a quest for her husband. She rode on a chariot and was chaperoned by a crew of royal counselors. Meanwhile, her father the king received a special visitor. It was the sage Narada. I suppose Narada could have been there for quite a while, telling gossip, but he was still there when Savitri returned from her quest. The girl presented herself to the king and then bowed to Narada. Narada naturally was curious about the girl's mission and asked the king why she wasn't married. King Ashvapati said, That's exactly the reason I sent her out. She's just returned, so let's see what she came up with. Savitri began by describing a king from the land of the Shalvas, named Dhyamatsena. She said, This king did not have a son until he was quite old, and when the boy was young, Dhyamatsena lost his eyesight. Taking advantage of his infirmity, one of his neighboring kings invaded his kingdom and drove blind Dhyamatsena and his family off their land. His son is named Satyavat, and he lives with his parents as an ascetic in the jungle. I have chosen Satyavat to be my husband. Narada gasped in shock at her pronouncement. He said, Whoa! This girl's making a big mistake. I know this family. Both the mother and father are good people, and the boy is named Satyavat by the Brahmins because of his truthfulness. The king asked, So how is his personality? Is he wise and generous? Narada replied yes to all the above. So the king pressed him. If he's so great as you say, why shouldn't he marry my daughter? Narada said, He has just this one flaw. In one year he'll be a dead man. The king stood up and said, Go, Savitri, go now and find yourself a new man. Narada predicts he will be dead in a year, so you better believe it. Saddened but obstinate, Savitri said, Some things happen only once in life, and one of those is when a woman chooses her husband. I have chosen and I shall not choose again. Narada couldn't say better than that, so he endorsed her decision and advised the king to do the same. The king said, I shall do as you say, for you are my guru. Wishing them good luck in this venture, Narada then shot up into the sky, returning to heaven, presumably to gossip among the devas about these doomed lovers. While questioning the utility of going through with such elaborate ceremonies for an impoverished son-in-law who was not long for life, the king commenced planning for the wedding. Putting together a fancy wedding party, the father and daughter set off to meet with the groom's family. Blind, impoverished King Diumatsena greeted the royals and respectfully offered them seats. Once they were settled, the host asked, "So what can I do for you?" King Ashvapati said, "This is my daughter Savitri. According to custom, take her from me as your daughter-in-law." Yumatsena demurred. He said, "We are fallen on hard times and live like sadhus. How could this princess bear the hardship of life with us?" Ashvapati replied, "My daughter knows as well as I that sorrow and happiness are temporary. She has made up her mind." Yumatsena didn't need much convincing. I'm only guessing, but I bet Savitri's dowry was sufficient to buy them a few choice amenities, like maybe a Greek slave or two. Thus joyously Ashwapati unloaded his daughter and her dowry and returned home. Savitri, for her part, entered her husband's compound, leaving her jewelry at the gate, and changed out of her silks to don tree bark. Adapting quickly, she soon fell into their routine of austerities. All the time, however, she kept thinking of Narada's prophecy. The year passed quickly in this same peaceful routine until just a few days were left before her husband's expected death. Savitri still had not told them what she knew. But as the date neared, she undertook a fast in which she stayed standing continuously for four days with the fast ending on the day of Satyavat's death. The family all thought that this was a bit harsh, but they did these sorts of things all the time, so no one questioned her. Finally, on the morning of Satyavat's death, her oath came to an end. Savitri's mother-in-law suggested she rest and eat something to break her fast. Just then, Satyavat walked by with an axe and declared he was going out to gather wood for the Agnihotra sacrifice. Quickly calculating that he probably would not be returning alive, Savitri jumped up and asked to accompany him. Pointing out that this was the first time she had left the compound since she arrived the year before, her in-laws allowed Savitri to go along with Satyavat into the woods. They just told her patronizingly, but see to it you don't distract Satyavat along the way. Sleep deprived and weak from hunger, Savitri accompanied her husband as he gathered wood. Relishing every last moment with her beloved, she marveled at the beauty she saw all around her. Satyavat was splitting firewood when the preordained time came. He suddenly dropped his axe and said, I suddenly feel sick. I need to sit down. Savitri ran to her husband as he collapsed and lay next to him, her head in his lap. Not long after, Savitri saw a man approaching. This guy wore yellow robes and a yellow turban, had black skin and red eyes. He carried a noose in his right hand. As he approached, Savitri stood up and bowed to him. She said, I can tell you are God, so please tell me who you are and what's your business. The God said, Because you are such a devoted wife and have such spiritual power, I will tell you, I am Yama. Your husband's time has come. I would normally send one of my flunkies to fetch him, but Satyavat was so virtuous and good that I've come in person for him. You should be honored. Now step aside while I do my thing. With those words, Yama plunged his fist into Satyavat's chest and withdrew a thumb-sized homunculus, a little man that was Satyavat's soul. Slipping his noose over the little fellow, Yama turned to go. I'm sure most of us would not have even glimpsed Yama while he performed his duty. But by now, Savitri had become quite spiritually powerful. So Yama thought he had vanished from her sight, and he began heading back to the world. When he looked behind him, however, there was Savitri, tagging along. Still polite, but getting irritated, Yama said, Go back, you're done here. He's dead, now find someone else. Savitri responded, saying that it was a woman's eternal right to stay by her husband's side, and no one could dispute that. Yama said, Hear, here. that is well said indeed. I'll grant you a wish, accepting this man's life. Savitri then asked for her father-in-law to regain his eyesight. Yama said, consider it done. Now, how about you go home now? You look tired. Savitri replied, how could I be tired when I'm with my beloved? I'm going wherever he goes. Yama then offered her a second wish, in which she requested her father-in-law's kingdom be returned. Savitri also asked that her father might have a hundred sons. This was granted, and she then asked that she also would have one hundred sons, and this too was granted. Apparently, what Yama liked about her was her philosophizing, so she hit him with one more sermon. She said, The faithful always abide by dharma. The faithful do not worry or despair. The faithful lead the sun by their truth, and their penance holds up the earth. The faithful help others without expecting anything in return. Yama ate this up. He praised her again, saying, You speak so well, so meaningfully. I just love it. Go ahead, make another wish. She got him this time. She said, You didn't put any conditions on this one, so I'll take my husband back. Thank you very much." Yama was a good sport, and he granted her wish, and also gave them both lifespans of 400 years. Soon after, Setiavat awoke with Savitri by his side. He did not remember anything, just that he'd had a headache and had laid down to rest. It was quite late by now, and the jackals were crying all around, so Savitri did not explain. The pair carefully made their way home. Back at the camp, the old man had suddenly regained his eyesight. Not knowing the cause of this, their first thought was of their son. They grew quite worried when it got dark and the couple had still not returned. As the camp brahmins fired up the scheduled Agnihotra, they reassured the old couple that such a virtuous couple could not come to harm. Some time after midnight, Savitri and Satyavat returned home. Satyavat explained that he'd fallen sick and thus they were late. It was then that he recalled a strange dream he had, where his wife was negotiating for his very soul. The girl's austerities, the old man's vision, and this dream were too much for one coincidence. So they all demanded an explanation from Savitri. Honestly, the girl told them about Narada's prediction, her vow, Satyavat's death, and her bargains with Yama. She then told them what they might expect, hundreds of sons and the return of the kingdom. Just as she finished, a messenger from the Shalvas arrived with urgent news. King Diumatsena's usurper was dead. There had been a palace coup in which a minister had assassinated the entire royal family and seized control. The people rose up in anger and in turn deposed the minister. Now the throne was open, and Dumatsena was welcomed by the people. Not long after, both Savitri and her mother became pregnant and had sons. Somehow the two unfortunate ladies went on to have one hundred sons each. Markandeya concluded this story, saying, Thus, Savitri, by her toil, saved her family. Likewise, the auspicious Draupadi shall rescue all of you. Remember, Vaisampayana is narrating the whole story, and he also chimed in, concluding the chapter. Vaisampayana said, Thus did the great-spirited Markandeya pacify the Pandava, and they went on to live in Kanyaka woods without sorrow or fear. That's all for now. Next episode, we'll get back to the Karna story, which we haven't heard much since the first book.